Hey, I'm Maria. I work at a labor union by day and write and watch too much TV by night. I like to say I've been firmly in the CW's clutches since it was a WB. As the great Seth Cohen on the OC once said about the fictional teen drama, The Valley, TV teen dramas are mind-numbing escapism. They exist in a fantasy world where 20-something hot actors are usually cosplaying high schoolers in melodramatic depictions of adolescents. But that's honestly why I love teen dramas so much. I love the tropes and the ships and the not-at-all-subtle product placement. I love the early aughts theme songs and the cameo performances by pop-punk bands. I love the newer generation of shows that are more diverse and representative of the vastness of teenage girldom. And I especially love the moments when TV teen dramas get political. You guys, we can organize, stand together, speak with one voice. Karl Marx has come alive for me today. Now it just seems so obviously wrong that those who control capital should make their fortunes off the labor of the working class. Well, since you've fired us, you've given us plenty of time to kick in. Workers of the world unite for all the Welcome to another episode of Leftist Teen Drama. I'm really excited that today my friend Viamara has joined us for the first time to the podcast. So welcome to the pod. Hey, uh, really excited. Probably nervous, you could tell. <laughs> so we always talk about like how we know each other because on this podcast, it's usually like thematically relevant to politics. So I met Vio when we both were working at the Central Labor Council, where she still works. And so we know each other because of labor things which you know y'all heard this a lot of times for a lot of different guests on this podcast I was like when I was like an assistant like I had just been an intern and like Via was coming in as like you know in a much bigger role but we're like around the same age and you know we're, there aren't a lot there weren't a lot of women in that office at the time so I feel like we were able to really bond <laughs> yeah it's always intimidating to be one of the younger like younger persons on staff yeah um so you want to say like immediately I saw you and I was like oh like another woman another like semi-young woman look at us like I gravitated um, yeah <laughs> yep yep and yeah and we had our friend Alex too who's kind of like he was my mentor in my intern program and yeah I feel like we all we all got to do some fun stuff together and we got to experience our first New York City Labor Day parade together that was fun <laughs> <laughs> Nothing mornings yep early early mornings on the streets of manhattan but yeah you're ever in new york city listeners around labor day it is pretty awesome to see like all of the unions like march up this avenue yeah definitely <laughs> like fun as any other parade in the yeah city. yep and yeah some of the like building trades unions really go like all out they do some like really cool shit so yeah, this uh, year um, we're going to do, I don't want to call them superlatives, but we are going to do like different recognitions. So our affiliates really lean into that. So different unions will like go all out with their floats and it's it's really fun to see. Yeah, labor things. Then obviously we became friends and I feel like On My Block came out in 2018. So at that point I was working for a different union, but I had an excuse to come to the CLC office like once a month because I had to come to this like monthly meeting. So I feel like I'd always 
like come stop by your cubicle yeah. and we talk about stuff. At some point, we somehow realized we were both watching On My Block and like obsessed with it and started talking about it. And so when I thought about talking about On My Block on the podcast, I was like, oh, well, naturally, I have to ask Theo to come on. Like, <laughs> before we get started, do you want to like introduce yourself at all more than you already have? Sure. My name is Theo Mata, but everyone calls me Theo. Um, first generation Peruvian American uh, from upstate New York, and I'm always voting for everyone brown. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about all my black. Yes, exactly, exactly. I feel like I started watching it as soon as it came out. Like, they, you know, whatever Netflix promotion was happening, like it, I was the target, I got targeted and I watched it. Like, <laughs> so I feel like I've been on this train since the beginning. One of my favorite things about it is that it's both funny and super dramatic and it never feels like contrived in either way. Like the characters are just like funny and the situations they're in just like make sense for the setting that they live in. Yeah, same. I honestly forget how I stumbled upon the marketing for On My Blog. Like I forget where the first time it was I saw it, but it was, I know that it hit me like the very instant that I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, I want to see that. But I'm also of the same kind that like saw Jane the Virgin. And again, very niche, I don't even think anyone was watching CW sitcoms like that. And yeah. then I the Virgin and I was like, oh, I can relate on this in a lot of different ways. So I'm watching. And then I saw the same, I felt the same way when I saw the previews for All My Black. And I was like, this is, I, and my timing is always off, especially now after having my daughter. So like mommy brain is real. <laughs> I don't know if, I want to say All My Block came out after Stranger Things. And I think so. Stranger Things was cool and I like it. But then I saw All My Block and it was just like a new layer of like, oh, I fuck with this hard. Like they're up to no fucking good and they're brown and it's like a realistic neighborhood. Yes, I, I'm, I'm going to lean into this hard. So many like things that I like want to see in my teen dramas all together in one. And I also wanted to talk before we go into like more specific plot lines about how the music is like really important to the show, I feel like. Like almost like its own character. And like it reminds me of I've been listening to the OC podcast that two of the original cast members have been doing and they did like a whole episode about like the music on that show and how the music was like its own character and everything. And I totally see that influence in On My Block like of like the earlier teen dramas because I just feel like like specifically when you think about like there are like just so many musical moments in the show where like you hear a song and it reminds you of like on my block like changes by Dage Love like it plays like at the beginning of the big Pinsay episode and then also like at the end and then it comes up again later in the series which I think we're gonna watch because we're gonna talk about Ruby's PTSD quite a bit so I just like I love that I love when I think that it's kind of almost like a like a lost art in some of our current teen dramas of like having the music really be like integral to like the universe you know yeah, and, and a compliment in a way. Like, yeah. the way you talk about the OC, the way I'm thinking about, like, One Tree Hill. And, yes, like, One Tree Hill, too, for sure. And, you know, that song, like, I don't want to be... Anytime I hear it, I'm just like, oh, wow. I remember sitting on my couch watching One Tree Hill and having that song be, like, have 20 different renditions throughout all of its, like, 20 seasons or whatever. Yeah. And every time it meant something different. It was very much, like, in tune with whatever was going on at that moment in the series. And, yeah, changes for All My Block is absolutely that. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I do recommend listeners that you go listen to, like, the All My Block playlist. They have, like, an official one that has, like, all the music from all four seasons. And I was listening to it when I was prepping for this podcast. And I was like, this is a good playlist. Like... <laughs> 
I can appreciate shows with good playlists. I'm also one to listen to like Insecure's playlist and that Ooh, yes. is another heavy. Yeah. yeah, no, that's definitely another one. If you're looking for like a good playlist to do some work to or something, like absolutely. Like these TV um, creators understood like, <laughs> how important music was to this show. Yeah, exactly. It really does like set a tone and like, especially when you're talking about a show where the the principal characters are all people of color, I feel like it even more so like sets the tone to like have the music like also reflect that. Yeah. Um, that's pretty awesome. So yeah, I think we're gonna like basically go through the show kind of chronologically and just sort of talk about like different plot lines and things they touched on that are like the most political. And then I thought we would close out by just talking about the brilliance of Abuelita, which sort of works perfectly because she kind of ends the series in a way, you know? So I guess like just to talk about season one, it just does such a good job of establishing the the setting of Free Ridge, which I think it's cool they went with like a fictional version of like an you know an underprivileged city neighborhood because white well, does feel like authentic and realistic but it gave them room to not have to actually like reckon with a particular history of a particular neighborhood like some other shows do you know like how insecure is like you know set specifically like she's, she's from Englewood, right mm-hmm. yeah and then in all american we, we talked about on this show they're from crenshaw so like some shows really do that and they do that well but it's kind of cool to create like a fictional a fictional one and get to create this like fictional like lore of the of the neighborhood and stuff yeah i remember me and this this is because there are moments where you know i openly admit i am not the smartest person right so i was like free ridge is that like a real place i had i thought that too at first for sure because this was and like i'm not from the west coast right but series and movies that are based out of the west coast it just felt nostalgic in a way so i was like i'm very curious to see if this is actually a real place and once i realized it wasn't i think it really like you said it just it lended itself to have its own history to create its own uniqueness and have its own place in the show and i think just like the dynamics even just like their high school dynamics i was like wow this is like this is a really big fucking high school and i remember seeing high schools like this in teen movies like Oh my God, like uh, 10 things I can't, uh, 10 things I hate about you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, it gave me like those high school vibes where it's just like beautiful high schools and really big high schools. But I imagine that it comes with such charge politics, like how big these communities are that need them and things like that. So I, yeah, I, I love this like faux world of on my block. And so I thought that we would start by watching the first scene where we meet the gang, because I think that they establish a lot of things about the setting, like right off the bat, that we can sort of talk about. Do you see him? I don't see him. Something bad is happening. I can feel it. I knew this was a dumb idea. Well, Papa Zanny, Jay, we can't see him because he's being stealth. No doubt. He's got this. When is Caesar ever disappointed? Mm, fourth grade, kickball 20. We lost. Only because I picked the kid with no skills. And I'd pick you again. Loyalty. Trump's victory, compa. Ah. Take it in. This is about to be us. This is high school. Ruby, you think your brother's gonna marry Angelica? No idea. Mario tells me Jack. <laughs> what about that time he said Angelica has a dangler? <laughs> but he said that. In private? Time and place, dude. Oh, guys, check out where he at 9 o'clock. say if you were a girl... I am a girl. Yeah, but if you were a girl like that, would you wear underwear? Oh my god. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Why are you gonna die? Those guys play for the rich. Did you know that last year alone, over a quorum of kids died, died playing football? You're stuck on repeat. So don't play. No choice. 
Pops was a legend. It's family tradition. I'm dead. You're not dead. Football spiral. <laughs> Jamal, CTE is not in your future. Guys, check out my game. Wait, ain't that just gave me the nod? Are you in my cock, cabron? No, God, no. I'm learning to dance. Easy, he does your mom's taxes. Miss Guzman, right? $3,000 refund, Schedule C, line 30, home office deduction. Seriously, dude? Yo, what are you doing, Essay? That's Spooky's little bro, dog. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize it was you, homie. Hey, listen, Matt, tell Spooky said I sends respects, all right? Let's get out of here. And thank God for your brother. God, thank God for better things. That was a 38. No, it was a 45. It sounded like a 44. Wrong. 337. So yeah, that's how we're introduced to the gang. I feel like there's a lot to unpack in just that one scene. <laughs> So first of all, like, I just love how much, and this is going to be something that we talk about throughout this episode, I'm sure. I just love how much, like, friendship is, like, central to the show because having, like, a core group of friends like that is something that I feel like sometimes gets sacrificed in teen dramas and for the sake of drama, you know? And they, even though they obviously have times when they're, like, on the outs, like, their friendship, the four of them, is prioritized throughout the series. Yeah, that line that Caesar says, right, that loyalty trumps victory it's just like a very humane way to say like through thick and thin and that's exactly what it is i think that sometimes that can get so cliche to say in like a tv series now where it's like we're gonna be together through thick and thin through ups and downs and the way he said it was just so succinct and it, it was fitting for like the conversation that they were having but it was just so deep on so many levels because that is so true victories can look and be so many things and mm -hmm. you know the loyalty that you have with that core group of friends is like that is a victory that is a bigger win than you could ever probably experience yes and so then we are introduced to the fact that like Jamal doesn't want to play football. And I just think we're generally introduced to the fact that they're kind of like the smart kids on the block, you know, like between the fact that Ruby does <laughs> this like random gangsters taxes and the fact that like they're all talking about like how like CTE is not in Jamal's future and like they're canonically like 14. Yeah. <laughs> it's like these kids like fucking know what's Oh, and I just yeah. I just love that about it. Even even the drinking of the beer, I feel like half the time I when I rewatch the scene, I'm like, I could easily see them drinking it, not because they think it's cool, partially in part of it, sure, but also because they just want to know what it's like. They want to experience and take that knowledge back and be like, actually, this does not taste like that. I can see Ruby outside of this series dropping a line and be like, actually, hops taste like bah. Um <laughs> So I, I don't know. I feel like deep down they were also just taking like mental inventories of what beer tasted like. And it was very evident in like how they reacted to it. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, Ruby, I, I, I love Ruby. And I, like when I saw that scene, I was like, yo, can you do my taxes? Because I'd be struggling out here. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, it's tax season as we record this. And yeah, no, I love that so much. And then I think the other thing that is important to note is the end of the scene when gunshots ring out and their response is to play like a game that they clearly play every time gunshots ring out of trying to guess which kind of gun it is. 
Yeah, you know, when I first saw that and I was like, you know, anyone else, they would look at it in a completely different way. They'd be like, fuck, again, like this is fucking exhausting mentally, da da da. But for them, they bring like such a lightness where it's like, listen, I can't change the circumstances around me, so I might as well learn how to surf. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's so cool about On My Block is that it actually explores like all of the nuances of what growing up um, like amongst gun violence. It like is and like in a lot of other teen dramas, like guns come out for like dramatic effect, you know, like or like rich people have access to guns because rich people have access to whatever they want to have access to, you know, like that kind of thing. But in On My Block is one of the only teen dramas I can think of that like really goes all the way in on like what it's like to actually just grow up like in a neighborhood that is like underfunded and forgotten and therefore violence has filled in the the gaps you know yeah and um, in the space like yeah. you know, other people you know I'm and I heard this a lot during COVID where it's like oh I just I'm tired of hearing sirens especially for you know friends in the city like I'm tired of hearing the sirens I'm tired of hearing you know all the emergency services sirens like I'm I'm exhausted it's so mentally draining and I feel like in that same sense, All My Block did that with gunshots and it, it almost played like a black burner role in a lot of different scenes, especially yep. in the first season. Yep, totally. So after that initial scene, they like go to registration day at school and on their way to school, they like just walk past multiple different gangs basically doing their thing so they walk past the prophets and they're like shit it's your colors one of them's wearing the wrong colors they have to like you know take it off yeah and then they see someone getting jumped into the 19th street gang and jamal has to tell mom to like look away and so like within the first episode they're like establishing that like just violence is baked into their their lives like just in the background and then later that episode, while Monse and Caesar are alone and making out, Monse sees Caesar's scars, and that's the confirmation that he was jumped in over the summer into the Santos gang. Then by the end of the episode, there are more gunshots, and it calls back to the beginning of the episode, and they all yell 44. It really drops them straight into everything, and like the end of the first episode, like Monse says, like we have to save Caesar, and I feel like that sort of continues on through the whole series at that point. Yeah, I think especially that scene between Caesar and Monse, where Caesar's just kind of like leaning into like, listen, this is my destiny. This is this is it. This is a generational thing now. It's it's beyond me. It's bigger than me. I I don't have a say in this. I think that that tone from Caesar, I think a lot of people look at gang violence and they're like, oh, you know, there's no rhyme or reason, but there is, right? And and for someone like Caesar, you know, how how do you look at your family? You know, he said it, he's like his uncles, his, you know, cousins, all of them are somehow involved in the Santos. And so how do you look to your family and say, no, I don't want that, like, I I could easily see him being troubled with the stigma of him thinking that he's better than them and, Mm. and, you know, trying to have Mon, you know, trying to explain that to Monse, who clearly he, he likes very much so, but she just doesn't understand that's not her world. Yep. And it's also really heartbreaking because basically it's very clear that the friends had all come up with this like plan. They're all going to escape the neighborhood. They're all going to go to college. And because Spooky, Caesar's older brother, had been in jail at the time. Like, they thought that he would be able to skate by through high school just being affiliated but not actually in the gang, and then he'd be able to, like, leave. And then Oscar gets out of jail, and, like, the whole plan is just sort of 
like thrown away and but so makes sense that Monse is like no but this is a plan like we have to like figure Follow out how to still do it yeah and Caesar's just kind of like well Oscar is out of prison we didn't count on that part like it's we're fucked you know like like you said like this is my generational like duty and we just had hoped that circumstance would allow me to skate by but yeah. yeah i mean they they banked on his affiliation right yes. getting out of like that weird awkward tense situation back at that opening scene right where right you know it's like oh that's spooky's brother oh you know tell them you know my you know sending my regards and floating and kind of skating through that affiliation until he's back in person where he can not co actively co-sign and be like I co-signed for my brother. His little friends, like, that's their business. That's not mine. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think I wasn't expecting Spooky to make that appearance in the first season. I was just like, oh, who the fuck is Spooky in the opening scene? And then when you see it, it's like, uh, okay, granted. Expectations have a per personification and it's Spooky. Yeah. My God, yeah, but Spooky has quite a journey. I like, you know, like, I would not have thought that I would care about him as much as I did in season four, like, in season one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So then as we continue on, we start to be introduced to Jamal's like aspirations of finding the lost money from like this roller world heist, which I just like love that they created this entire like, you know, history lore of the Santos. But I also just love this line where Monse says to Jamal, like, only white kids find buried treasure. We're brown. And it totally calls out, like, what the show is doing almost explicitly, where it's, like, usually only white kids get to, like, follow the mystery, you know, and go on the treasure hunt or whatever. And in this entire series, they are on a continual treasure hunt, and they're a bunch of black and brown kids. And it's, like, pretty awesome <laughs> yeah. that they subverted the genre like that. They flipped it on its head. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I have to say, sometimes I feel like some of their, like, especially Monse's comments, like, try attempt or, like, try to pick at, like, the fourth wall. And I'm like, does she know? Like, no, no. Okay, <laughs> let me take this step. Like, she doesn't know. This is totally not, like, when Will Smith broke down the fourth wall and, like, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, it's not the same thing. This is very much, she's just making a comment and it resonates different because we know. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And yeah, they're definitely like political kids. Like we'll get into some of like, like Ruby definitely fancies himself a feminist and like makes some points over the course of the series. I do buy them saying things like that for sure. And then Ruby comes home in the second episode to meet Olivia, whose parents have been deported. So she's staying with them. And so again, like things that are just baked into the experience of living in a community full of immigrants. Like, you know, they, they like call her like, I think they call her like, his cousin but like it's not like really your cousin it's just like clearly like a family friend kind of situation and so that switches up the rooms and introduces you know new love interests for ruby and caesar and then in the third episode the central dance of the episode gets canceled because there's a gun so like they build up the dance this whole episode and then they just show up and it's just like no actually we can't have the dance. I just really appreciate the way that their their different plot lines feel very shaped by the setting. Yeah, like the same way that, you know, saving Caesar was supposed to go one way, right? They had all their expectations to have it go as planned, only for it to blow up when Spooky comes out early. The same way with the dance, right? You know, hyping it up, going back and forth and very much like, I don't know, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not there for them, I'm there for me, da, da, da. and then hyping themselves up the entire episode only for it to be taken away from them for certainly, you know, for things that they cannot control. Very much painting like mini subplots that lead up to like this overall theme that like expectations and reality are not, are not friends, right? Especially when you live in the ridge. 
Yep. Exactly. And so then on Halloween, you like find out that every year they do a shut in, which, you know, now we have Olivia. She's from Texas, but like has basically come to, you know, L.A., Free Ridge to stay with them because of her parents being deported. And so we have somebody who can be kind of like the viewer who they're introducing their life and their customs to. And so they're like, yeah, we do a shut in every year because like we tried to trick-or-treat before and it never ended up well. So I'm going to quote some of what they said. They said, trick-or-treating in Free Ridge is a no-go. And so Olivia's like, why? And Ruby's like, you might want to sit down. I'll be brief. 2012, profits rolled up on us, glocks to our heads, stole our bags. 2013, we were kissing pavement all night, caught a drive-by. That night, we lost our candy and perhaps our innocence. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like delivered hilariously, but like it's very clear that like really traumatic things have happened to them on Halloween before when they tried to like go out and be normal kids. And so then they, it's just like leads to them being like, okay, like we're doing a shut-in. This is going to be the best shut-in ever. Instead of really like wallowing on the fact that they can't go trick-or-treating, they've clearly created a new tradition that they look forward to every year. But then of course the mystery, you know, takes over and Jamal gets everyone to go to Brentwood so that he can stalk a certain former member of that crew but while they're there like caesar says as they're like trick-or-treating through brentwood like this nice ass neighborhood in la which actually exists he says isn't it nice to not have to look over our shoulders for once (laughs) yeah it's it's like culture shock on multiple levels right olivia's culture shock of like going from someplace where it wasn't like the ridge and then coming in and having Ruby and the crew just like kind of gently break her in into like a a new reality check where it's like listen like we're not being dramatic this is this is not this is not just us being overly sensitive to where we live but this is just the reality of where you know where we do live and being mindful that like you know we want to get the fuck out of here part of that means we have to stay alive so we need to stay inside on Halloween and then the other culture shock for them when they do go to Brentwood and just like Caesar said, you know, not not having to worry, not having to constantly be on edge everywhere you go. I mean, that's it's it's a relief. And I I mean, quick sidebar, I feel like I always have like a slight moment of culture shock when I talk about my high school experience where it's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, like you, know, you get off the bus, you go through the metal detectors, and like a lot of people I know now, they'd be like, What do you mean metal detectors? I'm like, Well yeah, like, you know, once you go to middle school, you know, you have, you go through metal detectors before you go inside the building. They're like, why? And it's like, what do you mean? That's just, that's, I don't know why. That's just all I know. And they're yeah. like, my school didn't have metal detectors. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. And they're like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just one of those things where it's like, you don't know what other communities are like, right? And yep. you, you know, high, it would have been nice to not go through metal detectors in high school in some parts of, of uh, the state. So yeah, and every time, you know, I hear, uh, this is fucked up, right? But when I hear of like, different things that are going down in schools I'm like where the fuck are these metal detectors at like you know and having a sad moment right where that's the reality that I've known and thankfully and not thankfully I guess in other places you know that's just not the culture that's just doesn't exist but in places like Free Ridge you know I've always had a Halloween so to imagine not having one when you're older because you know these are the things that you have to deal with like you grow up quick and you grow up they're not angry all the time right they find like lightness and in some of this like darkness 
but yeah that that scene was just real funny to me on all ends where it's like wow you were giving someone a culture shock while you receiving one hours later (laughs) yeah and they go to the party too and there's like the white rich kid like dressed up as like a cholo or whatever like it's like ridiculous like and and they that's a really funny moment where they have oscar come and like scare the living shit out of that dude and like be like i'm an actual like gang member like they don't dress up like yeah, another also, I mean, in my head, that whole thing was over fucking fresh juice. <laughs> oh, right. That too. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, that, it was very real. Like, like my mom's yeah. like pressed juice for her cleanse. I was like, wow, this is too real. This is very Brentwood. <laughs> I was just like, what the? And once he said it costs like 40 to $50, I'm like, get the fuck. It's fucking juice. Like, get out of here with $40, $50 to pay for this shit. Yeah, so more, just more culture shock for all of them, for sure. <laughs> so then in the fifth episode, Oscar is at the door looking for Caesar because someone shot one of the homies and Caesar's not answering his phone. And before Oscar can leave, sirens, you know, start breaking out and the cops, like, tell everyone the block's on lockdown for your safety stay inside till further advised and so then like the crew minus caesar is stuck on lockdown inside with oscar which leads to a lot of funny (laughs) yeah right yeah it's adorable no it's fine (laughs) the next episode they're in lockdown and then the end of the season the specific act of violence that's going to define like the rest of this series is sort of we're leading up to it basically latrell pulls a gun which is interesting i should say that like we're gonna talk about latrell a little bit like he is first introduced earlier in the season as just kind of like the the like bully on the block almost just the way he's first introduced but he's a prophet and he pulls a gun on caesar and at that point like a green light is out on caesar and basically like he has to he as his brother like very plainly puts out to him like he has to either kill latrell or be killed is like basically the situation that caesar has found himself in and so in the ninth episode of the first season, he says, my life is over. I'm dead either way. If I kill Latrell, I'll be dead inside. If I don't kill him, I'll just be dead. And so that's like, you know, we're in the end of the first season and Caesar is like, you know, facing this same decision. The rest of the crew is like desperately trying to find the roller world money, thinking that if they can get enough money to get Caesar like out of there, they can save his life and yeah it's just all of this is like very (laughs) i i buy all of it but it's also it's just like so much happens in just the first season and then in the final episode of the first season ruby and olivia get shot by latrell at olivia's quince when caesar lets latrell quote-unquote disappear instead of killing him which he obviously does not do and I would just say that this act of violence definitely defines the rest of the season. And I also just wanted to talk before we go more into that about how during that say, like the whole thing with Olivia's parents, I, I just like really loved that. And I think that they didn't like shy away from all of the different nuances of Olivia being like undocumented and like with this other family. Like when they first find out that she's about to turn 15, like the next week and they're like oh shit we have to we have to you know throw her quince and everyone's like super excited and she like goes into her room and starts crying because like her and her parents had like dreamed about her quince since she was a little girl and now they're not going to be there with her like i just thought that was such a 
genuine, real situation. And I, I love that they chose to have them be 14 so that they could include like that pivotal moment of like the Kinsey, you know, in the storyline. Yeah. Anytime we're talking about like immigrant community, undocumented community, it always hits heavier on me. Like I... I grew up for most of my, yeah, for most of my, like up until high school, I, my parents were undocumented. Yeah. Right? So like my experiences are completely different from the experience of like folks whose parents were documented or folks who just didn't have to worry about Im- like Im- the immigration system in this country at all. Right. And so that scene with Olivia really just hit home because again, it hints at this larger theme that, you know, built expectations are not reality. And like at any moment, things can be taken from you and you have no control over, right? And so it hit hard for me because I'm like, wow, that's so true. Like the same way that Caesar or the, you know, the squad in, in the bridge, you know, are constantly looking over their shoulders the same way that undocumented folks and, and even family members of undocumented folks, right? Like there's a constant over your shoulder. There's a constant like having this loom over your heart and your head for however long. And, and again, trying your best to like have your own life, have your own expectations and things to look forward to. And then having no real guarantee that you'll be able to enjoy them once yeah. they get there. Like that's, that hit so heavy for me. I was like, wow, that, that is exactly what that's like. Yeah. And then really adorably, Ruby sort of in reaction to that, just like, like launches into planner mode, you know, he has like a headset. He's like, you know, just directing everyone. And in in that he also like, very much tries to like bring Olivia's parents to her in whatever way he can find. So he like makes cardboard cutouts of them so that she can take pictures of them at her quincey. And then on the night of the quincey, he like prizes her by saying he got a cell phone to her parents and they're like going to be able to talk on the phone and FaceTime. And they managed to make the connection for like a minute maybe. And like they exchange a little bit of words and then the connection goes bad and they say they have bad service and will call back in 20. And like by the time that they call back, like Olivia has been shot. But it's just so like beautiful and like Olivia like you know is so emotional about Ruby having done that for for her and I don't know I just I'm really glad that they even though Olivia obviously is only in season one it was it was cool that they had that represented and I love that Ruby's family always seems to be taking people in you know yeah that it goes back to community right and yeah I think Ruby's mom and I mean for the most part I feel like I didn't even see Ruby's dad until the quince but I always knew like he was around right but yeah no that that whole I think when you live in communities like the Ridge I think I think building that community and fostering that caring environment even if it doesn't exist in the exterior I think that is common and I think it's almost like meant like required to survive like you need to have this like very giving and caring network of people who are willing to meet you where you are and yeah. help you through it because it's it's tough like can you imagine like I like, having to move like knowing that your parents are no longer there and having to move to an entirely different state acclimate to an entirely different environment and then on top of that get to know people that you know you may have talked on the phone with once or twice but you've never had a relationship like that and then to just submerge yourself all at once this is like the equivalent of like teaching someone how to swim but you throw the kid in and as opposed to like having lessons and like gently right like that that's what it was for me yeah we're at the point where olivia and ruby have been shot season ends 
and season two begins and we're going to talk a lot about how ruby struggles with ptsd in the aftermath of the shooting and i think it's like one of the best plot lines that they do on the show so the opening scene of season two is really beautiful and sad because they kind of use this like montage to show that the gang violence has because of that shooting like clearly had like gotten worse and so there's like lots and lots of roadside memorials with prayer candles and stuffed animals with like you know the colors making it very clear that there are like on both sides of the feud like lots of fallen victims and you see jasmine add a stuffed animal to one of the memorials for what seems to be a very young latina girl and Monse helps Caesar get dressed in this montage and you can see how bruised he is because he clearly got an insane beating after the gang found out that he did not kill the trial like he was assigned to do and so then it finally brings you to Ruby who has healed from having been shot but unfortunately Olivia has passed away and it's New Year's Eve and we sort of see where Ruby is at Abuelita offers him some weed he hasn't cried about everything like he's definitely you know there's a lot of different ways to grieve and he's definitely like experiencing sort of like a numbness I feel like yeah that whole opening scene was just like a mind fuck like I you don't know that Ruby survived you don't yes. know that Olivia is dead and so you're yes. trying to like piece together just very like very quickly in like this montage where it's like okay Ruby's mom, like Abuelita's wearing black. Is this a funeral? Like, what is right. going on? There's a there's a tray of food, which I'm like, okay, so it's like, is this a funeral? People coming back to the house to eat? Like, is this? And then Ruby's mom breaks down, looking at a picture of Olivia and Ruby together. Yep. And I'm like, oh, fuck, like they're both dead. This is crazy. I can't. Like, how is this gonna even? I don't even want to open. And then you you see Ruby in like a shirt and tie, and you're sitting here like, oh my god, they're doing a casket scene. Like, this is crazy. This is the opening scene. Like for this season, this is wild. And then he opens his eyes, like very much Game of Thrones. Jon Snow moment and I'm like okay I was like all right well way to fuck with me like yeah oh yeah they had fun with that one yeah they They were like we're gonna make this cliffhanger go as long as we can (laughs) but yeah that that whole montage of just different like makeshift memorials for people who had been caught in the crossfires some some caught directly because their involvement others like that you know like i want to say she was really she was probably in grade school still yeah um, yeah definitely caught in the crossfires for sure yeah crossfires and i think for the most part this is like a new reality for the squad right we're up and up until Olivia and Ruby's incident they never directly had any like no one was ever shot like they had guns put on them but no one was ever shot it was something that they could have like they avoided to some extent until that day so yeah that that scene was just like wild to me yeah they do a really good job with like using montages to like you know like do exposition and like show change over time like yeah I always appreciate that because so you sometimes you think that like that could really not work if you don't do it right, but I feel like they always do it right. So I thought the first scene we would watch from season two is at New Year's, Ruby is really trying to like be like, I'm doing okay, you know, I'm moving on. And instead, he has kind of his first panic attack since he got shot. So we're going to watch that. I already, I already, I know that scene and I'm already like, okay, see ya. Like, prepare yourself. <laughs> Yeah, we're definitely watching some of the more emotional ones, which makes sense, I guess. Go! <laughs> yes, yes, um, I want to say something really quick before the new year rings in. You got 30 seconds. I know you're all worried that I'm just fronting and putting on a good face, but I'm not. No, I'm not a victim. 
I'm a survivor. Ah. And I don't want to live the rest of my life in fear or with regret, because it's a choice. And every day, we can choose to, to focus on our gifts instead of our misfortunes. We can choose to, to turn our worst tragedies into our greatest blessings, and we can choose to love instead of hate. By the way, shout out to whoever brought that pie. Yeah. Tonight, I want to look to my future and not my past. Tonight, I want to make every second count, because tonight, I'm alive and OK. Yeah. forget your kindness. Your encouragement and support. Your beautiful heart. And your unconditional friendship. You're the first and only girlfriend I've ever had. And until I met you, I never knew what I was missing. You should unwrap it. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. What? What's so funny? Oh my gosh, Ruby. What? That is a terrible birthday gift. <laughs> Why? What's so terrible about trying to better someone's skill set? I'm with Ruby. The girl was many things, definitely not a linguist. Yeah, she once called Orchata. Paracha. Wasn't just once. <laughs> I miss her. Yeah, I really love that friendship moment. I love that he immediately, like, you know, instead of just being alone in that, ended up being able to, like, Find Caesar. Caesar found him, I guess. And then the rest of the friends followed. I, I remember watching that scene for the first time and thinking, like, whose the fuck idea was it to get poppers? 
Like, yeah. <laughs> that was my initial thought. I was like, who dropped the fucking ball on the decorations and celebration tools? Like, in what world do you get poppers when someone just had, like, a gunshot, injury, rela- like, injury and incident, like, death-related yeah. thing? I was so pissed. And then I was like, you know what, see unnecessary evil. Like, he needed to have his first cry. He needed to have, like, the moment where, you know, what I don't want to call it denial, but that first moment where the reality, like, resets in where it's like, yes, you are not a victim. You are a survivor. But that's not to say that you did not experience this. Mm-hmm. And you could be triggered by it at any moment. So I, at first I was mad. And then I was like, okay. Like, yeah, it's okay. Necessary evil needs to happen. And Ruby's, like, whole little, like, soapbox like was very much like who he is who you've known Ruby to be in like earlier seasons and not just him but the entire squad again you know being around gun violence and having a light game of trying to figure out the caliber size so very much Ruby very much trying to hint at like I want to be who I was before this happened and again for me that larger theme like that whole two seconds would see there and he's like it's not your fault you did the right thing going back to what I can't can't stop mentioning of building up expectation hoping it goes that way and then reality sets in and takes that expectation away from you where I'm sure Caesar expected Latrell to just get the fuck out disappear Mm -hmm. and both of them just be on their way towards getting out of whatever they were stuck in at that moment and then having reality set in and have him come back have him cause harm in ways that probably Caesar didn't expect um, and have reality be like no you cannot get what you expected you cannot plan what you want out of this life will hand you something more sour than that so that, that was that was a beautiful moment between Ruby and Caesar for me because it, you know, yes. guilt all around that, that guilt was easing at Caesar had, that was after. Right. And I was like, why is Caesar even there? But he, like his Ruby's mom had just closed the door on him. Yep. Like, yep. 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 Minutes before. Right. And so where she's very welcoming that whole, like that whole core groups of families are very welcoming at that moment. Caesar was, a, it was the first time he had ever experienced them shutting him out. So I'm sure he kind of stuck around. It stung and he was probably thinking about Olivia and this whole thing and how it was his fault. And then Ruby experiences his wake up moment and they find each other in like their moments of solitude where they both feel very much alone. So yeah, beautiful on so many levels. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. It comes back to the four of them like hugging and sharing the moment of missing their friend. And I mean, just generally, I just love how emotional and vulnerable they all are with each other, considering that three out of the four of the friend group members are teenage boys. It's like a really beautiful representation of just like young boys getting to like feel their emotions and show them to each other so yeah so ruby sort of continues to like have basically like you know this is changing him and so his family continues to see changes in his behavior so in the next episode ruby refuses to go to mass of the family which he has never done before and i mean hilariously mario's fucking called baby mama so we think is an atheist and refuses to go which is hilarious and but jenny's like well she's not part of our family like you are you have to come like what happened to you and ruby says i almost died and olivia did and i just don't believe in a god who would let that happen and apparently that's enough for his mom to be like okay i you cannot go but you have to stay home or whatever which i don't think he he does when he goes and he ends up finding spooky and having like kind of a reckoning with him he gets really angry at him which is like you know 
that's how you know that he's really traumatized because he's like yelling at a gang leader. <laughs> but Spook used to tell Ruby that he made sure no one finished the job. And he just says like, there's a lot of things you don't know. And there's a little mention of like how the prison industrial complex plays a role in like the community here where he talks about how you think Walmart is going to hire someone of two strikes, like basically being like very subtly, like, you know, I like can't like, this isn't really my choice. Like, this is what I'm stuck doing. Like, and that is the the cycle of violence that the prison industrial complex creates by creating second class citizens when you get out so that you get stuck having to do work that isn't legal to <laughs> put bread on the table and such. So yeah, it's all, I, I just love how it's all baked in there very organically. Yeah, I think there's just a moment of mindfulness coming from Ruby's mom, right? Like you can tell that Ruby's mom is like firm, but not like not super strict. She's very respectful and she's she's also one to like recognize where space needs, right? And so mm. I know I love my parents, but if I told my parents like, hey, I don't want to go to church after something traumatic, my mom would be like, you need to lean into faith. right yeah and ruby's mom was just like you know what i'm not who am i to invalidate how you feel you just went through this thing you absolutely have a right to experience doubt in faith right i think that that moment was just like very it touched me because i'm like wow like that's that's not common right and for her to just kind of like not push it anymore and just be like you know what i will soften i will take i will bow out and you don't have to be okay right now. And that's perfectly okay. You being okay does not mean that you don't question, that you just follow suit. So I, I love that. And then that whole thing with, with Spooky, yeah, I mean, the the prison industrial complex, I say, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's just one of the factors that, you know, feeds and fuels the cycle of exploitation felt by communities like the Ridge, right? Yeah. It's a cycle. Folks come out. Folks have no way out. There are exactly. there are factors that keep them in communities like this. And when they eventually end up in prison, right, they come back and they're still stuck, right? There are mm. no... There are no resources. Like employment looks a lot different, right? So they're, yes. they're brought back into the same place that brought them probably in. And for folks like Ruby and Jamal and Monse and Caesar, you know, their whole expectation was, you know, we will get out. We will find a way out. It's a matter of saving Caesar to get out because there's there are factors that we cannot control that control him. I feel like Ruby just also has a new authority to himself where it's like, I can say and do whatever the fuck I want because I was fucking shot. (laughs) Like real 50 cent vibe where it's like, I got shot and I'm back and I can't be done with. And I have to say that that was, it was enjoyable to see from Ruby because he's always been so nervous and so scared and very calculated about how much to speak out, especially with Spooky, right? Like in season one, he tries to like get Caesar out and he ends up getting Caesar promoted. Yes. That was Um, so funny. And so to see him in that next season, not, not care what he says to Spooky, I think that was growth. Yeah. Absolutely. So I thought we would next watch another sort of leg on Ruby's healing journey, 
where he ends up opening up to Jasmine in the third episode. And they have a really fun friendship turned into romance at a certain point. But this is a really pivotal moment because both the audience and Ruby finds out that while everyone kind of makes fun of Jasmine and she's like off in the butt of the joke, this whole time she's been taking care of her father who's been disabled um, when he was at war in Afghanistan. And that's not something that she really like seems to advertise. But they both talk about what Ruby's going through and Ruby kind of more understands why Jasmine is the way she is by by way of like being in her space and like learning this about her. And I think it's a beautiful moment. Dad, I love to hang with Dad. Short and sweet. You're the hero that I want to meet. What up, Peeper? You weren't answering your door. Because I'm in the middle of a show. Mr. Flores, hi. I'm your neighbor, Ruby Martinez. Is he mad at me? Or, hi, why are you whispering? Because he's right there. Not really. Hey, puppy, you're looking a little red. Get his arms. Wait, you can stand there and watch a man burn? Was something happening? Afghanistan. Hey, get the tops of his feet. Last time I forgot, he didn't talk to me for a week. Oh. <laughs> Listen, I came over here to apologize. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have blown up at you like that. Oh, boo is fine. I know it can be a little much. Some people even find me annoying. Okay, most people. But when you've had enough doors slammed in your face, you kind of get used to it. I mean, some people may not like me, but that just means I gotta love myself that much more. I can be a little much too. Oh, I know. But who cares? You gotta be you. Why live for other people? Why are you letting me off so easy? Because I know you got a lot in your plate. I mean, shit, Ruby, you just got shot. Olivia's dead. It's all I think about. Yo, I get it. When my dad first came home, all I did was bargain with the universe for things to go back to the way they were. But they never did, so I realized that if I wanted things to change, I was gonna have to focus on the things that I could actually control. And the only thing I could actually control was me. So I decided to be happy. Cause why screw yourself if the universe is just gonna screw you anyway? Right, Poppy? So that was a really beautiful moment. We learned so much more about Jasmine in that moment. <laughs> it out to jasmine yeah yeah that's a great character great great character that scene i feel like again finding the warmth and all the cold that you feel right finding the light and that is the darkness of reality and what it hands you you see that scene and you think of all the uh, like past scenes that she's been in and you're like wow like at no point did like you never see jasmine sulk in mm -hmm. And the sadness that she's been dealt right and having to again be someone to grow up quick having to care for her dad the way she does not advertising it but also always being like you said the butt of the joke and not being able to like share this vulnerability in a space where she felt comfortable and but not shying away from it like she didn't say like hey Ruby get out of here right she's just like hey lean in and help me with this yep exactly <laughs> Yeah, she's just very comfortable in who she is, and it's pretty awesome. And so then later in the episode, Ruby breaks down with Jasmine, and he says, I know you said I have more control than I think, but it doesn't feel that way. I just want to go back to before all this happened. I keep replaying everything in my head. She wanted to cancel Bikin's Bay. What if I hadn't forced her to have it? What if I hadn't pulled her onto the dance floor? What if I hadn't swung her around when I saw Latrell? Maybe the bullet would have gone through her and killed me. I should have dropped to the floor, ducked down. And like Jasmine's like, you did nothing wrong. Stop punishing yourself. 
there's nothing you could have or should have done. And so this sort of is the beginning of Jasmine really being there for Ruby in a way that I don't think anyone else really is. Like she seems to really be the one who knows what's going on with him at this point. And it's beautiful, honestly. Yeah, I think I think that also stems from just the uniqueness of her own situation where it's like, you know, how many other people are struggling with a parent who's just come back from war? Yeah. Like, especially in like Free Ridge, like how, how do you do that? Like she can't, it's, if she talked to anyone else, they couldn't have possibly said, I know how that feels like. And with Ruby, you know, being the only one in like their immediate inner circle, having got shot and the same could be said, not her trying to diminish how he feels, but rather just be like, Hey, I know what it's like to not be able to relate to anyone when it comes to the situation. This is what I do. Or like, this is, you know, you have to be able to control what you can and it's not easy, but you know, this is the start of you restoring yourself. Yeah, exactly. So in that vein, the next episode, it is the Valentine's day dance. And Ruby sort of decides that he is going to be like his old self, like he's taken Jasmine's words to heart and trying to like take control of what he can control. And he wants to win the dance competition. And so he ends up asking Jasmine to be his, you know, partner slash date. And they perform a pretty killer dance routine and win the contest. And Jasmine kisses him, they win a huge thing. And so just after the victory, Changes by Dej Loaf plays on the dance floor. And we're going to watch what happens. Unfortunately, healing is not linear. And even though he won a dance competition, that doesn't mean that if a trigger then comes up a second later, that he's not going to be triggered. And so, it, again, the scene also includes Jasmine being there for him. I'll go get him some water. What's going on? It's a song that was playing when they were shot. Hey, go, go. I got this. <sighs> Baby, it's okay. It's okay. You're not ready. I just want to be myself again. Oh, yeah. 
That whole scene is so well done because, like, obviously, to describe it, because it's very visual, like, there are, like, actual flashbacks to the night of the shooting, like, in the midst of the dance floor, and the music kind of distorts, too, which I think is, like, a good touch to, like, really make you feel like you're inside Ruby's brain. It's just, like, you know, one of those moments where you try to, like, be normal, and you're in a new normal, you know? That whole, again, like you said it before, like the way that the creators are able to like use montage as like a way to take you someplace else, that whole sequence and like clearly like having it be a trigger, a new type of mindfuck for Ruby where he just wants something, but instantly how, how deep a song can take him right back to that moment, right? Yeah. Ironically enough, he's in a dance setting. He is dressed to the nines, you know, and very quickly he just goes down this hole and it's, and it, it is scary. And I think what I loved about this scene was that Caesar and Monte like quickly picked up on it. Yeah. Um, and they're like, oh shit, like, oh no, 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 no. The same way with the poppers, the same way with the songs. I think this, the squad is also learning what some of these triggers can be and being mindful of it, right? And then Jasmine just being Jasmine and being like, it's okay to not be ready. Like, I yeah. understand entirely that you have these expectations to quickly go back and being yourself and there's nothing wrong with you not being ready. Exactly. Can we just say, I ha- these moments, like these scenes bring me back to how old they are, right? Because they're like 14, 15. Yes. Oh my I'm God. Like, you're doing all this shit for a $50 gift card to Chili's? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a routine. Like, damn. And in my head, I was like, their Chili's must be popping. Like, <laughs> <sighs> so I wanted to also talk briefly about how so Monse ends up meeting her mother. And she ends up in Brentwood for a while. And there's a bit more culture clash that happens there. And one thing that I think is really interesting is that Monse is kind of like, I don't know, should I stay long term? They're asking me to stay here long term. Like, and she's really debating it. And all her friends from Free Ridge are immediately like, yeah, you should stay. Like, what's there to debate? You're living in a baller house of expensive fits and it's safe. Like, you should stay here because you'll be safe here. And there's a hilarious sequence where like a couple of friends that she has made with like friends of her mom's like kids or whatever these like you know bougie white girls they bring sushi over while jamal and ruby are there and jamal and ruby have clearly never had sushi before and they're like super disgusted by it and they like try to use the chopsticks and it's just like so funny and at one point jamal does like a valley girl accent kind of thing mocking them and it's oh my god it's just so good yeah that whole like run with Monse was like hey should I stay or should I go yeah I was just talking about this with a relative literally in like the last 24 hours about you know me moving from my hometown her still being there and her aspiration is to get out and mm-hmm. leave right and recognizing that it's the hardest part sometimes is leaving right yeah. like the fear of you know what what leaving the uh, like the known and what you've known your entire life, what that could be. And then also just like logistically, right? Like I think it's like a slight call back to the first season where it's not, it's not the closest. Right. And so, you know, staying in Brentwood would mean having to create a new set of like obligation or a new sense of willingness to travel, to see each other, to see her friends, right? To, you know, to, to walk away. And in, I think, you know, so the goal was for them to leave 
free ridge, right? Yep. But I don't think anyone was expecting Monse to be the first and having it be this way. But it was really comforting to see all of them instantly be like, no, you need to stay. Like, this was the goal. Like, how we how we get here and how quickly this is and whether or not you move without us right away is not, is not a problem. Like, this is bigger than us. Like, you got to do it for you. And that kind of support for Monse, I think, was just really nice to see. Yes. There's also a funny thing where, like, the the bougie white girls are like vaping or whatever and she gets all freaked out that like they're vaping in her mom's house and jasmine's like we're in brentwood nobody here gets in trouble for alcohol and drugs just ponzi schemes and and then the like one of the white girls is like and money laundering my dad's business partner got caught monday laundering <laughs> and it's just a funny comment on like the difference between white collar crime and blue collar crime and just the idea of there's crime everywhere it's just like who gets punished and in what ways is based on the type of crime that made me chuckle quite a bit because again it's like another way of saying like white kids only find treasure like we are not them but again affiliation right being affiliated with a house in Brentwood being affiliated with you know Monte's new type of friends or you know the friends that she's exposed to right I yeah. think opens their eyes where it's like you know could we could we benefit from this affiliation the same way that perhaps we've benefited from an affiliation with Spooky all these years like could this be so yeah I mean I'll, totally. I'll admit the first time I tried sushi was like very eye-opening I was like what the fuck is this Um, (laughs) no totally i mean like of all the foods to just be dropped into sushi is definitely a very jarring one (laughs) you know yeah but i also wanted to do a side note for ruby the feminist as i was saying before one of my favorite things happens in season two when they still think that there's a a niece or nephew on the way and jenny ruby's mom is like i conspired with the doctor and i ordered a gender reveal dessert and ruby's like i think the bigger issue is why are we deciding the baby's gender the baby should be deciding for itself we need to date for the baby to tell us how he she or they identify And I just think that's hilarious. And Ruby's mom comes back at him with, I officially do not identify as the party planner. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no, I thought that was a really fun way to like poke at just the differences of understanding. Like, yes, gender reveals have been such a thing. And, and I'll be honest, when I, when I was pregnant, I went out of my way and I joked around with just like, it's not gender, it's sex. We're talking about the sex of the right. baby. Sex of the baby. We can find out now. And my invitations were, let's talk, like the like the little thing on the top was like, let's talk about sex. <laughs> and, Love um, it, yeah. And my friends who knew me were like, of course you did, Theo. Because of course <laughs> this is not a gender reveal. This is a sex reveal for you and Dahlia. And I was like, yes. Yeah, I mean, that is what it is, so. But, like, you know, with some parents, you can't talk about that. Like, I I can't imagine, I mean, I can't even imagine how I would navigate it with my own parents. Like, when I had to, they were just, like, very quick to, like, okay, yeah, it is the sex of the baby we're talking about. And it's like, okay, great. We don't have to talk about it until, like, how you feel about gender and pronouns. Like, I don't, this, it's, it's. It requires a special type of conversation and a special like almost formality where it's like, okay, we're going to formally talk about this and I'm going to formally be aggravated perhaps with how we talk about this. But for Ruby, it was just like, this is where I stand. This is it. And Ruby's mom, instead of trying to get into it, or even, I don't even think you you know what her stance is no. based on that conversation. You're just like, I don't want to be the party planner. And this all hints back to like how she's disliked this whole situation from jump oh yeah her reaction when they find out that it's not mario's kid is just so fucking funny she's like yes 
<laughs> she hit the lotto uh, yeah. emotionally. Oh, she God. was just like, oh, yes. But also, I don't know. We always hear about Mario and how smart he is. And in my head, I was like, how? how- I know. Where does I don't, they don't show that? They only tell. <laughs> For half the time, I think you forget that Mario is an actual relative of Ruby. Yeah, but yeah, that whole, yeah, that whole reaction, that whole like subplot of introducing Mario back with like an expecting baby mom was hilarious. Yeah, no, they did some great culture clash stuff with that, with that white girl, for sure. (laughs) And so then I wanted to pivot to talking a little bit about how Fever is basically homeless throughout season two. And that's like a big situation that they, that they touch on, because basically the gang completely puts him off after he refused to kill Luttrell. And so for a while he sleeps in Monse's dad's car, but then he comes home and he doesn't want Caesar around because he thinks that it's going to put Monse in danger. And so then Monse pays for him to go to a hostel and in the hostel people are like crying and yelling and Caesar can barely sleep. So then that leads to him staying with Jamal for a while and even working at Jamal's dad's barbecue joint, but then they're threatened. So then that has to change. And once Monse is in Brentwood, Monse's dad lets Caesar stay in Monse's room for a while. And then eventually the parents all get together, which I think really shows, like we were saying, the community of these families. They all get together and are kind of like, where are we going to put Caesar? Like he needs somewhere safe. And Ruby's mom is really hesitant because understandably there was a shooting in her backyard, but he is allowed to stay on the couch in the Martinez house for a while, which he goes a little crazy because that's while, you know, Mario and his white girlfriend are still staying there too. So it's a very full house. But by the end of that episode, there's a knock at the door and someone leaves a bullet at the front door. So it's very clear that Caesar needs to move again. And so then he stays in a church sanctuary with a bunch of undocumented immigrants, which I thought was a really interesting thing for them to have introduced in season two and apparently he sleeps there better than he had in like weeks and he ends up sharing food that ruby's mom dropped off with an immigrant who is separated from his kid but he talks about how like at least we can go outside here and like in guatemala where he's from and he hasn't seen his kid in 47 days so it's like very much like a a good representation of the kind of person who would be in you know a sanctuary with him and, you know, they're all worried because Latrell's back in town, but he, you know, he feels like I'm in a church, like there's no way that I'm going to get rolled up on here. But then later he tries to offer the Guatemalan man some gum. And apparently he has found out that, that Caesar is there because of previous gang affiliation. And he calls him the devil. And it's like, this is supposed to be a safe place. And he's like, you're in a gang. And Caesar's like, not anymore. I didn't have a choice. And the man's like, what do you know about choices? And so it's a really interesting, like, showing the difference between what it means to be in a gang in, like, a poor community in the U.S. versus in Guatemala. And just that interaction was really, I just thought it was really interesting. And I'm glad they included it. The whole sequence you just ran through, like, Ruby's mom's hesitancy to bring Caesar in, I'm sure was, like, layered, right? The last time she had a kid that wasn't her own in the house, she got shot. So like, to some extent, I'm sure that she's still feeling some, some level of anxiety and trauma herself where she's like, am I, am I able to actually care for someone? Cause the last time I tried, they didn't make it like they didn't get to go back to see their parents. So I'm sure that like, that was something that stuck out to me about Ruby's mom. And then Caesar's experience with someone who's undocumented again both of them having to look over their shoulders for very different reasons and the stigma that the 
orange Cheeto himself created around brown, around brown people being rapists, being the worst kind of people in this country, right? I think for un- like for undocumented folks, right? I'm sure that there's a level of I don't know how to say this. Let me not try to be so fucking formal. You just have you have to work harder. You have yeah. to, you have to work harder. There are there are tougher expectations onto you than on other folks in the United States, right? And so, speaking, you know, from an undocumented person, and then speaking to Caesar, who very who for the most part, one can assume he is documented. Yeah. Um, and the the whole, you know, what do you know about choice, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Again, their choices look very different, right? If he wanted to, he wouldn't choose to be undocumented. He'd choose to see his kids. He wouldn't yep. choose these circumstances for himself. Um, and perhaps there's that breakdown of, again, not understanding fully of Caesar's background, right? You know, it, it, it is generational. There are There is an expectation that carries with probably the men in his family that this is this is their lifestyle. This exactly. Is, this is who they are. But having it be a tough pill to swallow, right? Because on one end, you know, you have people even not even as far as, you know, as far as Brentwood, who look at folks from Free Ridge, who look at Caesar and any brown folks as like, I don't know, as this facade of, you know, gang, gangster, hood. Right. Um, and and not taking it more like taking not taking it as Seriously, as the realities that these folks live, but seeing it outside of that, and for the you know for Caesar's roommate, the reality is like you know you do you could have a choice. You you're in the United States, right? Like to your point, where gang violence in another country, especially in Latin American countries, is, is much more intense. There are less freedoms over there in in other countries to begin with, and so to really you know talk about being stuck not having choices i think he looks to caesar and says like what the fuck do you know about choices dude like you you have all the liberties that this country can afford you based on your citizenship alone and you choose to be in a gang and again unknowingly judging caesar the same way that he's being judged by others right Right. both of them absolutely absolutely yeah that scene was deep it was and then you know the reality sets in even more when father carlos who's the pastor at that church they're staying at comes with the news that ice has raided a number of churches in the area and they all have to be like ready to go so that is very real first of all (laughs) second of all that living situation therefore falls apart for caesar and he's again stuck with nowhere to go and they try to get him to go to chivos which you know is <laughs> the cousin of the santos of the past who has helped them with the roller world mystery here and there so everything is kind of like coming to a head um, as we get to the end of season two and i think we're gonna just quickly watch where caesar and ruby's plot lines sort of converge in season two as the gang minus Caesar, who's kind of been hiding, gets rolled up on by the prophets and another beautiful Caesar and Ruby friendship moment as well. Jazz, hurry up. Okay, thanks. But I'm pretty sure I number three myself. Uh, I gotta go. I'm not doing it. What is number three? I don't even I know. It's P, P, you're gross. <laughs> hey, mom, say, where that bitch ass boyfriend of yours at? Hey, we already know we ain't at your pop spot no more, so we're reacting. <laughs> yeah, we already know what's up with you, Ruby. Bang! <laughs> Santo killer, though. 
Hey, what's going on? We got rolled up on. The prophets, they were looking for you, and they knew you didn't work at Dwayne's anymore. They knew my name. Where's Monza? Is she okay? She's fine. She went home. Everyone went home except for me. No one knows I'm here. Shit, shit, shit! Breathe, okay? This is never gonna end. The trail won't go away. We're gonna be looking over our shoulder for the rest of our lives. We have to go to the police. Yeah, we can go to the police. The police? What are they gonna do? They already know Latrell's back in town, and they're not doing shit! No, my dad. They're gonna kill us all. Compa, listen to me. I died before I let anything happen to you. You know that, right? Right? Go into the bathroom, splash some water on your face, and breathe. Man, and like it's just fever will like do anything for his friends, you know. And like I think that that's ultimately what leads to him going down the path of the Santos is to like protect them. Yeah. So the moment he tells Ruby like go to the bathroom, splash your face, and breathe, I remember watching that scene and just being like. That's something my mom would say. Like, Aww. my mom would always be like, if you're upset, like, go wash your face. Can't look like you cried. Breathe. Right. Um, and I'm sure that it's not just my mom. It's like, probably like, it's moms say that, right? And so yeah. for that moment, I'm sure it was very comforting for Ruby to be like, yes, I will do that and I will be back. But again, Ruby being vulnerable with Caesar. I mean, yeah. that's Ruby, like, teeter tear. I don't know how to say it. Teeter tots. But he, he goes back from being a stronger Ruby than you see in a more confident and stronger Ruby than you see in season one, where all he did was be scared and be very shy. And then season two, where you see him speak up at, at spooky and, and really kind of get on his level. And then in this scene very quickly, right. A new trigger is introduced and who is he around Monse and Jamal this time who now see like, okay, you know, this is, it's different. It's one thing to know who shot him, to know that they're around. It's another thing to have them right in your face. Yep. And like taunting you about it. Yeah. I love how it always comes back to friendship at the end of the day. And I also love the way the, the scene where they were rolled up on, like how it began with them just joking around and like being normal kids. And then, you know, the reality sets in and interrupts them just getting to be kids for a bit. Some very real shit. <laughs> yeah. And I think for Ruby, he stopped being like a bystander the second they said, like the second they like they said his name. Yeah, the they said his name. He was it's a new a new level of like, okay, all right. Well, I'm no longer this random bystander. They know my name, and they 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 use it actively to identify and and pronounce their leverage over me. Yeah. After that, as you can see at the beat, it's very visual, so I didn't keep us continuing to watch it, but Caesar goes for the gun that Chivo has in his safe. And they, for a while, like in the next episode, they none of them know where Caesar is. And Ruby and Jamal think that Caesar is dead. 
Momsake refuses to believe that he's dead. Ruby says, because, you know, they're the smart kids. He's like, gang shootings are up 31% this year. <laughs> and, you know, just using kind of like knowledge to, to cope with a very scary thought that your friend is dead. And in this episode, we also see Ruby. His mom tries to move him out of the twins room. He has younger siblings who he's been living with. And she tries to move him into his own room. And he doesn't want to be in his own room. And he protests and his parents kind of talk to him and they're like they talk to him about how they think he's using the twins room as a crutch and he needs to like you know take that next step and and sleep by himself and i just i don't know i just love how like you know this is like the ninth episode of season two and i just love how they are portraying his ptsd as something that's like going to continue like i don't think there's any version that we see of ruby after the shooting that isn't going through it you know and that's very realistic because it doesn't just you know some unlike some teen dramas would like to make you think trauma doesn't go away in like an episode <laughs> right yeah and i think that scene for his parents right is equally as hard right like how do you cope as a parent when not only were they, they were there they were there when it happened they are trying to piece together they are trying to provide a new a new type of safety for ruby right after the yeah. fact and and recognizing that like, yeah, maybe, you know, he's always wanted his own room. Maybe if, you know, if he has something that his, that it could help. And Ruby's resistance, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's just another way of him fighting back this fear of solitude, right? That he already feels even when he is surrounded by folks. Imagine the heightenedness of it when he's alone in a room and yep. there's no one there who could pick up that he's beginning to have a panic attack. Right, totally. That's what Ruby is dealing with. And then meanwhile, Monse is dealing with trying to stay in in Free Ridge. Her dad is like very much like, I don't want you here anymore. Like this is dangerous. So we're just gonna watch an argument between Monse and her dad that I think kind of sums up a lot of things about like what they're reckoning with with like whether they should stay or whether they should go. Like we've been talking about like you know, you have an obligation to your community, but do you have an obligation to yourself as well? Like, you know, to get out. You okay? I have too many books. Ruby and Jamal are assholes. Why? They just are. They keep saying things like Caesar's probably dead and stuff. Caesar's a smart kid. I'm sure he's fine. That wasn't very convincing. I'm sorry, but this is free, Rich. What does that mean? Bad stuff happens here. Bad stuff happens everywhere. You think kids get rolled up on everywhere? They don't. Have you been rolled up on? Baby, answer me. I didn't want to stress you out. It was random, so. Random? Like your friend Olivia being shot? That was random. Now she's dead. This is exactly why I'm sending you away. Wait, what? The moment I found out Olivia was murdered, I started looking into boarding schools. With all my overtime and some financial aid, we can afford the best one, the Mayfield School. It's all girls in New Hampshire. No. They have one of the best prep writing programs in the country. The school's beautiful and safe. <laughs> no. You'd have a real community. I already have a real community. A failing community. What about hope and fighting back and building something? This is gangland. It's always been gangland. Your dad was a prophet. You were raised by prophets. What's the difference? The prophets I grew up with are not like the ones who exist now. When crack came in and the prophets changed that S to a dollar sign, it was over. Now Free Ridge is just somewhere you want to escape from. Not for me. I care about our community, and you should too. I'm not raising a community. I'm raising my daughter. You're going to that school. 
I can't leave Caesar. I just can't. I don't even know if Caesar's alive. And I never want to have to worry about that with you. You're going. So you don't give a shit about what I have to say? Not when you were two feet away from a bullet. But You're the kid. I'm the dad. End of discussion. Really intense discussion about like everything that's been going on thus far. Yeah, this has been like kind of a recurring theme like on our podcast in general, where we've talked in some, especially in like relation to the show All American on the CW, about how kids who grow up in these communities where people really are connected and they help each other out and everyone's invested in each other, balancing I want to fight for my community with I want to personally do well and grow and, you know, be the person I want to grow into. And like, where do you stop doing one so that you can do the other? You know, I feel like it's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And I feel like Monse really has that struggle because she does want to like study writing and, and go to college and have a better life. But she also feels this obligation to her community to stay and make it better. So it's, hard yeah yeah and and it goes back to like that expectation her expectation the squad's expectation was that they would be able to get out all of them mm-hmm. it seems after high school go on their ways stay connected but they've at least made it you know yep. and so ever ever since this whole opportunity at Brentwood even opened up right very quickly you come to see that this expectation is going to shift and it's going to change the goal is still the same, but how you get there changes. And I think for yeah. Monte, I think I think part of why it's so hard for her is because yes, Caesar, Ruby, Jamal, but with with it, where everything is now, right? Where these expectations, these goals were all established before the shooting, and now seeing how Ruby is, you know, seeing how Caesar is, and I'm I don't. This is probably the worst way to say it because she's not. It's like survivor's remorse, where it's yeah. You know, she she's able to get out but does that make her a worse person because right. her and you know especially knowing what she's now knowing what she knows now about jasmine's dad about ruby like knowing that there's so much potential and that if she just waits and if she just helps and stays a little longer that she could be a contributing factor on how all of them can get out without having to sacrifice any of them and then in, in that way, lifting your community, because now it's not just you. You've right. planted, you've planted the seed so that all of you guys can grow. I think this transitions perfectly into something that basically is something Monse's dealing with in from season two into season three, feeling numb to loss as all of this drama has happened to her. And so in the beginning of the second season, when she's talking to her mom about her life before they have actually revealed to each other that they are mother and daughter, she says, are you sure you want to set your book in Freeridge? It's not exactly a beach read. I mean, the only girlfriend I've ever had was gunned down at her own quince. And she says it very casually. And she's just like, and my boyfriend's homeless. And so her mom, Julia, asks how she's coping with that. And she said, I guess somewhere along the way, I've become numb to loss. My mom left me when I was three. And so she also like includes her mom's absence as part of that trauma that she's dealt with. And in season three, there's a moment when Monse and Caesar like try to like start over by going for a walk in the neighborhood. And it's just like Monse literally says, for all these years that I've lived here, I've never walked just to walk. And that just says so much 
like that you don't feel safe enough in your neighborhood to just go for a walk. Like it would never occur to you to just go for a walk if you're not trying to like get from point A to point B. So all of this being known during that walk, Monse gets a phone call from her mother, which she had previously been ignoring. And she decides to, to pick up the phone call because she's like, oh, new beginnings, like we said. And unfortunately, it is Julia's husband, Brian, calling to say that Julia has passed away. And so at the funeral, Monse is sort of just stone faced, surrounded by crying white people. The visual is very, honestly, like it's very jarring, the difference. And once the actual like, you know, church part of it is done and it's just the, re- the reception, the after part, she's very uncomfortable. And she like tells her dad that she feels like she doesn't belong here. And her dad's like, it's like she was your mother. Like if someone doesn't want you here, you then screw them. Like you like you are meant to be here, but she still doesn't feel like she belongs here. And all of the friends do come and they get they were in. Some, I can't even remember what they were fighting about because, you know, they fight a bunch of different times on the show. But whatever they were fighting about, they like apologize and they're all there for each other, which is beautiful. And at the funeral. Ruby is also like kind of reverting back to like some of his earlier traumas where he's like saying really inappropriate things about death like really loudly and Jasmine has to pull him aside and say like you have every right to feel triggered but what you're doing is triggering other people like you gotta stop so a lot's happening it's all happening at Monse's mom's funeral and I thought we would watch a really really good scene between Ruby and Monse who are you know the ones going through it the most at this moment where they they have a really real talk about loss and feeling numb to loss and like just everything they've been through. I had to get out. Everything was just starting to feel claustrophobic. Like I can't breathe. It's the pain of loss. You can't shake feeling shitty, but it's normal. And feeling bad is normal. That's the thing. I don't feel bad or sad or shitty. I feel relieved. I'm glad she's gone. She can't disappoint me anymore. Now I can't wonder whether or not she loved me or if she read my letter or she'll write me back. Leave me a voicemail that I didn't even listen to. I deleted the last one that she left and I don't even care. I don't care that I don't know the last thing that she said to me. That's okay. It's okay. Is it? Is it okay? Because I'm worried that all the shit that keeps happening to me, to us, I'm worried that it's starting not to penetrate or not make me feel anything. What if I'm totally desensitized to pain and loss? What if I become one of those people that are numb to life? I don't want to be that person, Ruby. I know that feeling. that too. These feelings pass. How do you know? Because you questioning if you're not feeling is you're still feeling something. I just want to give them both a hug. Yeah. I think those conversations help Ruby just as much as they help Monse. Yes, totally. Because I think they're they're both struggling to feel what they feel and not know what it means for them. Yeah, that scene. I and it's ironic that they're having it out in the street, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Where, you know, if they were, if they were outside any any place else, right? You probably couldn't. Yep, totally. Yeah, it's just very raw, and I just I just love scenes like that where 
the the friends are just so comfortable to be vulnerable with each other and you know the in in a lot of ways they're the only ones who understand what each other is going through because so much of what they've gone through they've gone through together so yeah so then Monse is you know headed to private school so as she's packing she like starts unpacking and being like i can't do this i'm not a private school kid these kids are privileged and i lack a filter and her dad's like you're smart and interesting and she says and from the streets and he's like just because you're from the streets doesn't mean you have to stay there and her dad like literally says don't waste this opportunity on some gang banger his life isn't going anywhere and yours is and Caesar hears that and he actually says your dad's right and it's just like it's so sad because it's like at the beginning this is like the end of season three and at the beginning of season one we they thought that Caesar was gonna be succeeding with them that his life was also gonna be going somewhere and now like he's almost accepted that like it's not going to and his life is you know been predetermined for him by way of being you know a member of the Santos from birth so and then just wrapping that up I also wanted to mention that Monse has to deal with uh the fact that that her mom lied to her stepdad and said that Monse's dad hit her and that eventually finally does come to a conclusion at the end of season four where like the like Brian the stepdad like actually like believes that Monty isn't like abusive that's definitely something that Monse deals with that's super messed up (laughs) it is it's totally fucked up right because not only did her mom abandon her but she created like this entirely new narrative as to like why she stepped out and it's easy for her to paint this picture because they're in Free Ridge because this you know she can she can bank on the stigma that Free Ridge holds and and leans into it enough for her to create this like an entire like entirely fake world that she was part of. And so yeah, that is fucked up, right? And I feel bad for Brian because it's not his fault that he believed her, right? It's, right, right. Um, but to a certain extent, you know, holding on to it without again, you know, power of a relationship between them, right? Knowing that you love someone, holding them to a level of accountability and truthfulness, and then finding out way after she's gone that that wasn't the case at all. And so, yeah, I mean, for Monse, that has to be, it's hard, right? Because here you have Brian thinking that you're taking care of Monse from Monty. And, you know, you have Monse who's stuck in the middle and all all her dad wants is for her to be out, out of the ridge and, yeah. and be someplace that, you know, she can be herself and and be safe and so yeah that that's such a fucked up situation that they put her in her mom put her in not them her mom put yeah her in. yes absolutely at the end of season three as we all know they jump forward two years to find that the the gang has all really gone their separate ways and not just because Monse's at mayfield but because the rest of the gang that's left behind has completely gone to different parts of the social like hierarchy of the high school as we get like into season four the violence uh, starts to ramp up again the fact that Cuchillos is dead is like kept a secret for like the whole two years and so like most of the Santos think they're still being run by Cuchillos but they're actually being run essentially by just Caesar and like the inner circle who knows that she's dead and so once that information that like basically what starts the season and like brings everyone back together is the fact that Cuchillos' body is found and therefore that's going to be revealed and then violence ramps up again in the neighborhood because other gangs realize like oh Cuchillos isn't around anymore like we don't have to be as afraid of the Santos so the block is hot by the fifth episode of the fourth season they start noticing new tags like profits over 19th street over santos caesar who had risen to leading the gang like actually gets demoted because of like what's going on 
And then we come to one of the saddest things that happens in the series, which is that while trying to get away with his fiance and who is pregnant and takes Caesar with him, Oscar is the next victim of gun violence that we see in the show. And that that was just so many feelings. <sighs> and the fact that he would have gotten away if he hadn't come back to try to save Caesar just like hits even harder, you know? I feel like I'm like a broken record, right? Like this this whole idea of you can have your own expectations and and that's cute. And and the moment that you feel that you can obtain it, something out of your control, like life, will come and completely derail any hope or any expectation you had for yourself, for your community, for your family. And that scene was just that scene was it for me. I was like, wow, this is this is crazy. Like the moment, the moment that, you know, Spooky was gonna go out and live near a beach and play out and have his own spot and just be fucking happy. Like yeah. the the spooky that you saw, I think it was in like season one where he opens up to Caesar and says, like, listen, I I was fucking smart. I know what the fuck a shallot is. Yeah. I, I, uh, I love that episode. Yeah. Like this is I am so much more than this exterior paints me out to be but I sacrificed and that's why like, I did it to protect you and for Spooky you know it's it's this whole for them right for like talking about their mom who you don't really hear about and Spooky telling Caesar like listen she was around but she was never really around like right like I was there and I sacrificed and I didn't go to like this big school or whatever school it was like I didn't go away because I knew you needed me because you could have easily fallen down and you needed someone there. And, and that same, that same level of love and commitment that Spooky had to Caesar comes back and life is like, that's cute. I have something about it. I have something in store for myself and takes, I, I keep calling him Spooky, but takes Spooky, Spooky away. Spooky, Oscar, either one works. He's got two names. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and takes him, takes him. And, and it's not, it's, and it's not even like a shock, right? Because of where they are. They're still in Free Ridge. And yeah. this is just what happened. And he is who he is. His affiliation with the Santos, as much as as much as he wants to live a quiet and and you know, a life of his own, there will always be that affiliation. And, you know, if he thought that he by moving he could escape it, you know, they weren't gonna let him do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So then they all spread Oscar's ashes together. They like help Caesar like find the right place. And like you said, they end up going back to the beach where they had that pivotal conversation about how they both wanted to have a future. And all of the friends embrace him after he spreads the ashes. And he says something that I think is so important. He says, Oscar kept telling me to reach out to you guys. I never listened. He knew that we needed each other. And it's just... It's true for both Oscar and Abuelita that the people who end up, we end up losing in the end of season four were the ones who like made sure that the squad got back together. And it's like kind of beautiful because it's like their legacy lives on through the, the fact that they did have the friends come back together and like they're going to have their lifelong friendship. Like, you know, by the end of the show, like I truly believe like they're not going to stop being friends, you know? Yeah. But it's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> so many means- feelings. It's it it leads like you you come back to this is like a teen show right because in your teens you go through this exploration of identity you're trying to figure out where you want to land in the spectrum of of high school and in that you know no one ever stays the same you you do change you make you know you 
you figure out who you want to be, sometimes through trial and error of what you don't want to be in Jamal's case, right? Yeah. And, you know, once you settle in and all the dust settles, you find what truly matters and the people who are there for you and what you value. And so, yeah, those Oscar and Abuelita, you know, really being the people who can very much be like no like this is just a phase you guys will come back you guys need each other and you guys have been friends for so long because of this because of your strength and how much you are stronger together yeah absolutely i just wanted to sort of close (laughs) out ruby's plot line sort of we find out that abuelita has cancer jamal's the first to find out she keeps it from from Ruby and Ruby ends up like pretty much being the last person to know like even in the family and he says I'm sick and tired of everyone treating me like I'm fragile one of my favorite scenes in the series that we're gonna we're gonna watch the the few clips that there are is that leads Ruby to go see Latrell in jail which he is clearly still in juvenile detention but is about to turn 18 because of where we are in in the storyline two years later and everything so he's about to be moved to federal prison which is like you know a very real part of like the prison industrial complex when you're talking about like teen gang members And I just think that the conversation they have, like, I don't know, I just, you know, we've had a podcast before where we talked in depth about like abolition. And I feel like this scene is like almost like an abolitionist scene, you know, like the fact that like Ruby is seeing Luttrell as like a person and not just like, not just the killer of Olivia. And they remember who each other were because they grew up together. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, I'm, I think it's a really cool dynamic and a really cool scene they chose to do. Can I say something? Yes. And I forget this. Sit down. Please. On the way over here, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. But now, my mind's totally blank. I know they're transferring you out of juvie when you turn 18. I just wanted to talk to you before it was too late. Because I knew if I didn't, I'd never get this off my chest. Everyone in my life walks on eggshells around me because of what you did. They think I live in fear. And up until now, I wasn't sure if they were right. Maybe they were. But now that I'm here looking at you, I'm realizing you were just a kid. A kid who who screwed up. You don't have power over me. Not anymore. All right. That's all I wanted to say. I think I wanted that power. Why do you ask for this shit? I didn't ask for any of this. All right, and then we're just going to go forward to the final conversation they have, and then we can talk about all of it. 
haven't had a cactus cooler since I was like 12. I actually think it was at your birthday party. All right. Hey, you were there. I remember because you got me that fake ass Kobe Bryant jersey from the swap meet. <laughs> <laughs> tee off the Brian, so I just said Brian. Okay, it was it was either that or Magic John jersey. <laughs> uh, I gotta go. I gotta be somewhere. Can you stay until I finish this? I uh, I can only drink it out here. So I looked up where you're going in Norcal. It's like eight hours away. Is your mom gonna be able to visit you? You mean, will she start visiting? Nah, it's, it's cool. She got a lot going on. I get it. Hey, you need to wrap it up. Hey. I know this might be weird, but... Is there anything I can do for you? Can you keep me from turning 18? I think that that scene is almost prefaced by the fact that when Latrell is originally caught, along with the rest of the prophets, that Ruby says it doesn't make him feel, like, better or anything. And I feel like that's often true. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are some families of victims who feel good when the perpetrator is in jail, but, like, the prison system doesn't actually fix the problems that led to the death, you know? Like, the gang that Latrell is part of is still, like, very much a presence in the community like doing violence and forcing young people like Latrell to do violence they don't want to do. Yeah, this scene gives off like very hopeful restorative justice vibes. Yes. Of what it could be and how the system could really provide closure and and how yeah, just how how we could yeah, how it could be. I think that's all I can say how it can be because the way it's set up right now it just doesn't do anything for anyone. Exactly. And I don't know, it's just like so human that they end up talking about like a birthday party that they were both at. Like, And it also just shows how much the different parts of this community are actually like intertwined, that they all went, they still all grew up together. They still all went to school together. They still would have been on each other's like list for who gets invited to your birthday party, even if they're technically affiliated with like different gangs or whatever. Like the next one I wanted to watch was just kind of closes out Jamal's plotline, I would say, where he talks about how everything that has to do with just like traditional graduation, like prom, all of that stuff, how it feels like trivial in comparison to everything they've dealt with and like anticlimactic. Also, I would like to note that in the scene we're about to watch, like it's about to be prom and Jamal and Ruby are getting manicures and pedicures together, which is amazing. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> Can we talk? Talking is the problem. Once Charlize starts to chat, ABJ retreats. I've been anxious as hell lately, constantly on edge. Just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I mean, I thought someone was following me, and when I found out it was Chibo, I was disappointed. Isn't that messed up? What are you talking about? Take prom for example. I can't stop thinking about Kendra. Kendra? When's the last time you even talked to her? Like a year ago? When she graduated from homeschool, she sent me her yearbook to sign. It was mostly photos of her, but I got class clown, and her cat was voted most likely to claw their way to the top. So cute, right? I miss that freak and how she used to freak me out. She was like the living embodiment of Roller World. 
everything was always unexpected with her. And then she disappeared, like the money. Where is the roller world money and who has it? Stop dwelling in the past. Picking a school, a prom date, a prom theme. Everything feels anticlimactic, like I'm settling. You say settling like it's a bad thing. You know what's the opposite of settling? Unsettling. Why can't we just have one perfect high school memory where no one is overthinking or triggered or humiliated? Where everyone is happy because the night is chill and basic. You sound like my prom committee. That's why I had to take the decision into my own hands. You chose the theme without a vote? No, we took a vote. And then I rigged it. What? So what's the theme? It's a surprise. So what's your next treatment? Nothing. That's it. I just wanted to clean up my cuticles. Hmm. All right, what else should I be doing? Maybe your eyebrows. <laughs> All right. It's definitely an interesting take on like all the trauma that they've dealt with that, you know, like not dealing with trauma is like making him feel like on edge because he's like something is going to happen, though. Because that's yeah. what they used to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get it. It's just, it's like, a, yeah, you, you look by that pattern where it's like, don't get your hopes up. Something's going to happen. Exactly. Um, something's going right. OK, something's bound to happen. Yeah. And it's, you know. It's I just think that they do a really good job of like making the totality of everything that has happened to these kids like really like like you can feel that they've lived that in the way that they act. I mean, I know that like half the time I'm like subtweeting Riverdale when I t say these things, but like it's just like when you have characters experience a bunch of trauma, like it should show up in the way that they act. And unfortunately, there are some shows that don't do that. And now my book does it really, really well. <laughs> Yeah. And so I also wanted to just, this is just a side note that I felt like we had to shout out before we close it out with Abuelita, which is that there are a couple of like funny union jokes they make throughout the series. So one is that in season one, when Ruby is putting together the very over the top quincey for Olivia, he is like, who knew there was a goat wranglers union? And he has to rethink his goat drawn carriage because they clearly can't pay union rates. And then when they're on the film set in season three, as part of their mission to find Lil Ricky, they make hilarious jokes about the difference between union and non-union background actors on a set because like the union people are wearing like much more like comfortable costumes, I guess I would say. And the non-union yeah. actors are wearing these like huge, ridiculous, like <laughs> like paper mache food costumes. Like if I yeah. I guess is how I would describe it. Yeah, that's that's accurate. And it was yeah, it was great. Uh, I always love when obviously because the film industry is heavily unionized, I always appreciate when they drop in those little jokes. Same. Uh, I always like I always look forward to them and I feel like it's like it's just like a I don't know, it's like a mental palate cleanser where it's like ah, okay yes humans <laughs> do exist in this world that's great yeah totally and so now we're going to close out by talking about one of the best characters on the show whose memorial closes out the show and who worked behind the scenes to bring the crew back together the one the only abuelita also known as marisol martinez <laughs> So she is the stoner grandma of my of my dreams, and I truly hope to be like her one day. Um, within the second episode, you're already introduced to the fact that she's a stoner. And in the third episode, her and Jamal have their first bonding scene, and they have like a really beautiful friendship that endures throughout the entire show. And it's just like it's really funny. They're like watching TV together while Abuelita like lights her bowl, and Jamal's like, "Why are the police doing this to him? He's white." And she's like, because he's poor, about whatever they're watching. 
for wisdom, new, new end. Exactly. Like she picks them up at Pimp Lane in the ninth episode of season one. And they're like, how do you know about Pimp Lane? And she's like, Miho, I wasn't always old. I was once what they call a sure thing. <laughs> they like are like, ew, I'm going to throw up. And she's like, don't slut shame me. Which I mean, Abuelita just woke. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't flaunt it, but she is. She's great. And then like in the middle of, of like Ruby freaking out when they're like getting ready for the quince, like he's like, some asshole is getting lit in the middle of all this. And then he like opens the door and it's Abuelita and like a priest, like smoking a bowl in the bathroom. And I'm like, me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point in season four where like Jamal's trying to avoid Monse's party and stay home with Abuelita. And she tries to get him to go by saying the holidays are about spending time with your friends and getting high. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes. That should be Raised. on a holiday card. Exactly. <laughs> and then, like, when she's in the hospital, she, like, ha- has Jamal break into the Martinez house for her to get her weed, which she then smokes in the hospital. It's <laughs> medicinal, is... Maria. What? It's, a, it's medicinal. I know. Queen shit. I mean, honestly, the amount of times that I just wrote queen shit in my notes about Abuelita. We just have two more scenes I wanted to watch, and one of them is the final pep talk that Abuelita gives Jamal before prom. Hamal. Yes, exactly. Oh my god, it's so funny the time when, because like Abuelita helps them like try to like wash the money from the roller world heist and everything. So she's like in on all the schemes. She gives them rides, like, you know. And so when the parents eventually find out about everything, like them finding out that Abuelita was part of everything is so funny. And then she says Hamal, and they're like, who's Hamal? And he keeps being like, yes. And they're like, go back to your room. That was epic, yeah. Oh, good. All right, so... Oh, and of course she's smoking a joint. <laughs> We're almost done. Take your time. Give me a hit. Hmm. I think I'm depressed. You to buy ducks? No, it's not money. Your day got the hope, probably, but that's not it. At first I thought it was anxiety, but it's worse. I'm sad. You're too much in your head. Get out of it. Go to prom. Damn. Have fun. Be a cliche. So you want me to be basic? Yes. Like <laughs> Annie. That's why she's happy. She never thinks. I can't do it. I'm just wired differently. I need a challenge. I'm tired of everything coming so easy. Feels meaningless. Poor Hamad. Oh, fuck. You know. The being popular sucks. I don't like the new Jamal. I want the old Jamal back. There's this perversion to struggle, and I miss being the underdog. When I was the guy who had something to prove, it wasn't about proving someone wrong. It was about doubling down and proving myself right. I understand. When I was a pageant queen in Jalisco, I had a choice. Become a supermodel or join La Guerra Sucia. It was modeling or maiming. So you know what I did? I went to war because I'm better at holding a machete than a pose. And that story is relevant because I don't remember. Abuelita! (laughs) I found buried treasure. I took down a gang boss. I saved my friend's life. I had a lot of sex. And now I'm about to be crowned prom king. What's next? College? It's just going to be a letdown unless... I can get into one of those secret societies, but how do you even get an invite to them? They don't return calls, texts, emails, doesn't matter. I just don't know what the point of anything is anymore. That's the point. That there is no point? No, that you don't know. The mystery. It's not about the destination, it's the journey. 
What if I go on the wrong journey? I need a purpose to help me find the right one. That's what I'm missing. My purpose will help me find the right journey, which will lead me to the destination. No. Purpose comes after the destination. Your purpose is the point of the journey, not the motivation for it. <laughs> purpose can be a mystery your whole life. Sometimes it isn't revealed until you're gone. Like I said, you don't go looking for your purpose. Your purpose finds you. The way you found me. Oh. You and your crazy schemes have given me a reason to believe. To keep me fighting in the face of death. That and I wanted to outlive my evil twin sister. <laughs> so my purpose might be a person. Or the doll which these might fit. Oh man. One final word of wisdom from Abuelita. It's fitting and it's perfect. There's nothing in that whole scene that doesn't just ring true. Yeah. It was like the perfect comforting moment. Yeah. And and, and, and through it all, she has a joint between her lips. <laughs> Saved wisdom. Yes. And so they all have a really fun time at prom, as they deserve after all they've been through. And they come home to unfortunately find Ruby's parents crying and explaining that Abuelita passed away peacefully right after they went to prom. And... They find out before she passes that she's the one who sent them all ransom notes in season four to try to get them to be friends again. So it's really beautiful that she doesn't pass away until after they've like reunited, you know, like it's almost like that was part of her purpose. Like she couldn't, she couldn't leave before that happening. Exactly. I was so sad when they said that she had cancer early in the season. I was like, fuck, they're going to kill her off, aren't they? I was like, no. And yeah, they did. But it was in a really beautiful way. So it was and, in a real beautiful way. And it was so different from all the other deaths in the, in the show. Yes. Where it was at the result of violence. And for her, you know, them saying that it was, she went peacefully. Yeah. Um, something that was for the most part new to them. Yeah. They also brought light to another thing that we forgot to mention, which was that the family was going through like problems with paying the medical bills. And Ruby thought it was his medical bills, but it turned out that it was Abuelita's medical bills. So, you know, as it goes in this community, nothing ever happens like easily. Like yeah. even even though they were able to get her the treatment to like, you know, clearly she was able to stay alive for a couple, you know, like a couple years there while still having cancer. Like they they definitely suffered for it. And medical debt is a very real thing that a lot of people in this country deal with and struggle is a norm on an everyday yep i wanted to like basically just close out with like the, the core fours little ending ruby gives a toast at the memorial the show ends at abuelita's memorial everyone is passing a joint around apparently they got a string called the afterlife in honor of abuelita love the details me too and so we're just gonna watch Ruby give a toast and the four friends kind of close, close the series out. They have a diaper changing elective at Portland Community because if Isabel's going to let you crash, you better learn how to clean an ass. I'm going to have it any other way. Mm-hmm. Everybody, please come in. On behalf of my family, 
I want to thank the Orozco family for hosting me. And to everyone coming to honor my Awalita tonight. I'm going to keep this short and sweet because my Awalita called me. <laughs> to an old broad who was never really old, who wanted to be celebrated, not mourned, and who showed us all how to live. He will be missed. Look familiar? Feels so long ago. Yeah, like yesterday. <laughs> Thank you, compa. For what? Believing in the unbelievable. When no one else would. Finding roller world. Which led us to little Ricky. Without you, I wouldn't still be here. So again, thank you for thanking me. Really? <laughs> That's how you're gonna respond. Thank you. Listen to the lady. What lady? Where? <laughs> Why are you still doing that? Then don't write about us. I mean, the world needs to know what you do with your socks. <laughs> <laughs> so, Monster, how do you think our story has? Oh, okay. Um, I don't know. Oh, now that we're all together, my abuelita left us something. Oh, open it. What does it say? It's a map. She made us a map. A map to what? What? Oh <laughs> okay, guys. I'm just gonna volunteer now. I think I should take lead on this Wait. One. No. What is this Roller World again? No, no, yes, no, no, it's Roller World. I have to go to college. I can't do this. Well, you can go to college. Well, I'm figuring that out. Hey, you know. You can't be charged. You lost the first dress. I'm going to be in first. You're going to be in first. Hold on, hold on. Why are you raising the ball? Why are you raising the ball? You're going to be in first. You're going to be in first. Abuelita leaves them a map that she like embroidered for them that yeah like continues the the mystery and the uh, gives them a reason to continue to you know scheme together yeah, yeah. to keep going and I, lo I love that they so the very visual thing that happened in that scene is that there are four young friends who are watching the you know the what to, what looks to the outside like a party because it is a party it's a celebration of her life and they notice them and are like oh remember like you know remember the pilot but it's also apparently a nod to the fact that those are going to be the four principal characters in on my block spinoff that they're doing at netflix so exciting yeah which is exciting and i'm excited it's going to also exist in the free ridge universe so i'm excited to see what they do with that it looks like there's three girls and one guy in the new the new foursome so that's fun yeah so yeah that was how they ended it i think it was a beautiful ending and i just think that like on my block is gonna have like a lasting impact on the teen drama genre like i feel like more and more shows are getting made with majority people of color casts and i also just i, I just will forever love that they had a bunch of black and brown kids getting to solve a mystery go on a scavenger hunt but at the same time represent all of the very many inequalities and violence that are inherent to growing up in a community that's filled with gun violence yeah it, it paved the way for for light 
in new in darkness and it gave way for shows like hentified coming out of netflix right with more black and brown protagonists so yeah mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited to see how on my block becomes a, a pillar of influence for shows yeah to absolutely and i just i love any show that celebrates community and friendship and i feel like at the heart of of everything that's really what they do Awesome. Well, we highly recommend that if you haven't already seen it, which I don't know why you would listen to this podcast episode if you haven't, but if somehow you haven't, go watch On My Block or go rewatch On My Block, you know? And yeah, thank you, Theo, for coming on. This was so fun. Thanks for having me, Maria. Uh, I love you. I got to jump. Yep. Like... yep. No, we, we we're done, so you can jump. Thanks, Maria. <laughs> Say hi to the baby I and, and I Alex. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to Leftist Teen Drama. Follow us on social media for updates. Links to our Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok are in the show notes, along with links to suggested additional reading on the topics discussed. Solidarity Forever, Free Palestine, and Abolish the PIC. Signing off, Maria.